Hebrews chapter 7, we're beginning in verse 11. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the flawless, perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, as well as his perfect high priestly ministry today. We ask that you would reveal Christ to us in fullness. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. As Gentiles, we're at something of a disadvantage. We just don't get it. We think in the dark having not been raised in the light. We don't understand, and that's our predicament. We don't get what we don't get. We don't know what we don't know. Nor do we appreciate the solution when it comes. God had a unique relationship with Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he makes it clear that he chose them not on the basis of anything in them, but because of his own purposes. And he called them out as the people of God. They are the chosen people. You only have I known among the nations, is one statement God makes in the Old Covenant. In the New, Paul writes this in Romans 3, What then advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given the words of God. God did not give them to the inhabitants of Europe or Asia or Australia or even America, he gave them to the people of God, Israel. To them were given the oracles of God. What a treasure that is. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 where this is made clear. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writing to Christians who were Gentile Christians. And in chapter 2, Verse 11, he writes this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, you are called uncircumcised by the circumcised, by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, at what time? Before their conversion to Christ, separated from Christ, separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both. Who are the both? The both here are Jews and Gentiles. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice this, God erected that wall. He made a distinction between the Jews and Gentiles. He is the one who erected the wall and he is the one who brought it down in the person of the Lord Jesus at the cross. Praise the Lord. As we continue reading, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. There's not Israel and the church. There's the people of God. There's one new man. And might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, Jews. Same message, one gospel. For through him, we both, that's Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so it goes on. That's what God has done for us because of Christ. But still, as Gentiles, unless raised in a Christian home, we're not familiar with the Old Testament. And many Christians in our day are basically ignorant of the Old Covenant. And that's a real disadvantage because the Jews have the advantage. They were raised with the oracles of God. As we go back to the book of Hebrews, we realize from Ephesians, as we've read, that we were strangers, aliens, without a covenant, without God and without hope. To get to God, you need a covenant. To get to God, you need a priest. Israel knew of this. We just think we'll do things our way. God says, I will not recognize your religion. You'll only come my way. There's one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as we understand the book of Hebrews, we understand the priestly ministry of Christ in a way no other book in the New Testament gives us. There's, there's hints of it elsewhere. We call John 17 the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And that's very significant. But it's Hebrews that tells us of Jesus as the high priest. Now, in Christ, we have it all. Christ has given us full access to the courtroom of God, not just the outer court, but the holy of holies. We can come boldly, believe it or not, to the holy of holy places through the blood of Jesus. And we can come anytime. That was not true of Israel. That was true only of one man once a year. One man on the planet ever came directly into the immediate presence of God, the great high priest, on one day of the calendar year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he was only in there a little while and got out 
fearing for his life. But you can come boldly because you're coming in Christ. He has achieved what no priest could achieve with his sacrifice, the giving of himself. So, we read our Bibles to understand our inheritance. We've got it all, now what is it all? We read our Bibles to understand what has God given us in Christ. And the treasures we find in Hebrews is just remarkable to me. But we were in this bleak position. Get the bleakness, get the understanding. That was a bleak condition without God, without hope, without a covenant. Nothing God was saying to us. He had dealt only with the Jews. I'm not Jewish by birth. I was born in England and became a U.S. citizen. I was England by birth and America by choice. But either one, by fleshly inheritance, neither one gets me in the kingdom of God. You're not in the kingdom because you're an American or an Englishman or a Chinese person or even Jewish. You get in because of the person of Jesus Christ and his work. Amen. So we've got it all. What is it all? Well, to grasp the message of Hebrews, we've got to understand Jewish thought. That makes sense, right? We were in the dark. They were in the light. So now we're in the light. Let's read with the light on. Let's read the Old Testament with the light turned on, knowing it's Christ who is the fulfillment of everything we read. Praise the Lord. On your handout, you'll see how the writer of Hebrews tracks the argument from verses 1 through 10. What we have here in the entire chapter is a comparison between the Levitical priesthood and that of Melchizedek. And we think immediately, come on, John, we're Americans. Yeah, and we've got to think Jewish unless we're going to just go through to chapter 8 and say, forget that. That's just Jewish stuff. No. God has preserved this word for us, Gentiles, as well as the Jews, to understand our inheritance. And it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. And we're going to find out some amazing thing about our Savior today. That's what Hebrews 7 is all about. Well, I want a practical message. Listen, there's nothing more practical than understanding who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing for you right now at the right hand of God. Amen. He ever lives to make intercession for you. How trivial it is would be for a preacher to get up and say, let's talk about seven ways to have a, a happier vacation or, or, or calmer pets. This is the most practical thing we can understand. When God reveals himself in his word, let's be alert, let's pay attention. So Melchizedek, as we saw last time, was both a priest and a king, something unknown under the Levitical order. Verses 1 and 2 outlines the historical record we find in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. We saw it last time. It describes the two-way relationship between Melchizedek and Abraham. We remember Melchizedek served bread and wine to Abraham. Uh, the Levitical system had no place for that. This was outside of that. No priest ever served bread and wine except the priest Melchizedek. And these outward symbols became the symbols of the new covenant. And Jesus did that. We saw that last time, Matthew 26. When he was serving bread and wine, he was shouting, I'm doing something no Levite priest ever did. And I'm doing things according to the order of Melchizedek. The Jewish mind would understand that. 
Praise the Lord. Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek, and tithing predates the law of Moses, and by this he acknowledged him as his high priest. He's acknowledging that Melchizedek was his priest through the means of tithing. Verse 3, Melchizedek appears without scriptural record regarding his genealogy, contrary to the norm. Normally we read of people and we read of their parents and we read of their children. That's not the case. We read of their birth date or their year of their birth and the year of their death. None of that occurs with Melchizedek. No mentioning of his birth, death, parents or descendants. This is by intention. And that's the point. This is by intention because the Bible is inspired by God. There were these three verses in Genesis and one in Psalms about Melchizedek. And that's where the writer to the Hebrews camps out and says, grasp this. Grasp this. Look what he's done. Look who he is. Look what he is. In comparison with the Levitical system, what you have in Christ is far, far better. What a message. Don't go back. Don't go back. You're going back to the lesser. And you would be repudiating the work of the Son of God if you do. So, This Melchizedek is a representative, he's a picture, he's a type of the Lord Jesus uh, in his role as high priest. Verses 4 through 10, the writer of Hebrews demonstrates Melchizedek's superior priesthood to that of Levi. Now get this, all that Judaism could give you was the priesthood of Levi. So for the writer to be making his case here, What an encouragement this is when everything in the natural realm looked bleak. They were not, as Christians, the high-level elite people in society. They were hounded. They were persecuted. This was a huddled little group. It was so tempting to go back to the synagogue and just worship with the other Jews, them being Jewish. And to worship Jesus as Messiah meant rejection by the Jewish community. And they were facing that head on. And the writer is writing and saying, don't ever go back. There's nothing to go back to. And what you have, though you don't see it, is far superior to what you can see. You can see lots and lots of people around you going to their synagogue. You may not see lots and lots of people going to the Christian church. But if you could see heavenly Jerusalem, that's where you go every Lord's Day. If you can walk by faith, not by sight. That's why he does Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter. You've got to believe in what you can't see. When God has revealed something, this is more powerful than anything in this world. Jesus said it this way, heaven and earth will pass away. That's everything of the scene. But my word will never pass away. What a message. Verses 4 through 10. The writer describes Melchizedek's superior priesthood to that of Levi. One, Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes. The inferior gave to the superior. Two, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, who is the father of God's people. The superior blesses the inferior. This priesthood of Melchizedek continues forever. We saw that in Psalm 110 verse 4. The order of Melchizedek is forever. And number four, through Abraham, Levi, who was not yet born, but present in Abraham's loins, gave him Melchizedek tithes. Now, we've got to grasp that. That's Hebrew thinking. Abraham gave tithes. But in Abraham 
was Levi. Yet to appear, yet to appear on the scene. He was not present at the time, but he was in his loins, his DNA, in other words. It was all there. And therefore, everything that came out of Abraham was giving to Melchizedek tithes, showing forth the fact that what Abram and the Levitical system would produce was inferior to Melchizedek and what he had. That's the argument. You say, well, that's a little complicated. It's not complicated for the Jew. The Jew is reading this and saying, this is mind-boggling. Wow! In three verses from the Old Testament in Genesis, you're proving that what we have in Jesus is better than everything our ancestors ever had. All of the oracles of God you were just leading up to this. Everything revealed was just pointing forward to this and we have it. Wow! Even though I can't see the full ramifications, I will one day. I'll see the reality of heavenly Jerusalem with Jesus on the throne of the universe. And by the way, he's there right now. Amazing. It's flawless logic. All these four points. Normally I love five points, but these four points prove the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. Think about it. That's everything they knew. Everything they knew. And in three verses in Genesis and one in Psalms, God is able to say, and what Jesus has and who he is and what he does and what he's doing is better than anything you've ever seen, nor has Israel ever seen. It's a wow moment when you realize this. None of this would be lost by the recipients of this letter who were Jewish. That leads us on to verse 11, which is our reading today. Verse 11 of Hebrews 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? See the logic. The question is being asked. If everything was perfect under the Levitical system, there'd be no need to improve on it. God is perfect. He's always been perfect. Jesus said, be perfect, even as you're Heavenly Father, your Father in Heaven is perfect. By the way, if you're perfect, you don't suffer from improvement. Because if you improve, you weren't perfect before you were improved. And God is not improving. He's not learning over time. He's not saying, you know, I kind of overreacted at the fall and I overreacted at the flood. You know, that was a lot of water and a lot of people died. You know? But I've learned from these things. Perish the thought. God is perfect in all his attributes and always has been. Always. He's the I am, not the I was or the I'm going to be. He always is. And so the argument is made, if we had perfection in the Levitical system, we wouldn't need to talk about another priest. But you all know it, there was not perfection. The people couldn't get to God. Even in the tabernacle and in the temple, there were certain courts that meant... At this point, you can go forward, but not any further. If you were Gentiles, you're in the furthest distance away from, from the immediate presence of God. And then you went forward if you're of Israel. Gentiles only could go so far. Israel could go to the next place. And then there was a court of the women. 
And then there were these sanctions whereby only one person once a year went into the immediate presence of God. It wasn't the whole people. And he only went in for a little while on one day. Made an offering and got out quick. That's it. Tradition tells us that a rope was tied around him so that if he died in the presence of God, people outside the court of the Holy of Holies could drag him out without getting killed themselves. That's how holy the presence of God is. And you can go there anytime because of Christ, your high priest. So the writer's making this point. The Levitical system could not bring perfection, could not bring completion. Therefore, it was not the ultimate. There was a need for another priest to arise. And so the message is, you can't stop there with the Levitical system. It didn't get you to perfection. So what's the message for the Hebrew Christians? What they have now is far better than anything in Israel's life and history. Because Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than that of the Levitical system. It makes me want to say, wow, and then say it backwards, and then upside down, mom. I don't know what to react to. This is the most amazing news. What we have in Christ is better than anything ever seen in Israel. If that doesn't float your boat, it's because you're not Jewish. These recipients of the letter, they got it. They were, they were going wow all over the page. Wow, wow, wow. Did, did you hear that, Baruch? Yes, I heard that. Wow. The implications continue to be spelled out. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And again, we've got to fix our mind on this. Not think Gentile, think Hebrew. The covenant of the law and the Levitical priesthood, now hear this, stand or fall together. They are interdependent. We've got to grasp this or else this passage won't make sense. See, the law tells us, the law told us what to do. Do this and you will live. It also provided a remedy for those who were lawbreakers. Those were the sacrifices under the law. Sheep and goat and so on. So, we not doing the law, we were lawbreakers. Inside the law system was this priesthood that made sacrifices for those who broke the law. And so the law and the law's priesthood goes together. They were inseparable. Therefore, when there's a change of priesthood, the argument here is there must be a change in the law. Read that verse again. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Why? They're inseparable. If you're going to change the priesthood, you've got to change the law. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. Now, who's the one here being spoken of? Jesus. And he belonged to another tribe. What tribe was Jesus according to the flesh? Judah, that's right. From which no one has ever served at the altar. We continue to read in verse 13. God has never given the priestly ministry to anyone of the tribe of Judah. No one has served at the altar. No one has served as a priest, in other words, from that tribe of Judah. 
The one, speaking of Jesus, fulfilled the prophecies concerning Melchizedek's priesthood, and he did not come from the tribe of Levi. He came from Judah. Jewish people would know this. No priests came from Judah, and no kings came from Levi. Kingship and priesthood were separated. They couldn't come from the one and the same tribe. Kings came from Judah. Just for way of reminder, go back to Genesis 49 for a moment. Here's the prophetic statement regarding Judah. Genesis 49, Jacob is speaking blessing over his sons and regarding the one son Judah, here's what's said about him. Verse 10, the scepter speaks of the kingship, the kingly reign. Scepters are used by kings. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. If you see that phrase, until tribute comes to him, you might have a marginal note in your Bible that speaks of Shiloh instead of the words you read there in the ESV. And so the ESV is making accommodation to the fact that the original word is Shiloh. In fact, the NASB puts it that way. We need to understand that. Shiloh is a messianic title. And Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. And the NASB reads at this point, until Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, comes. So it speaks of one coming who's the king and he will have the scepter. And again, kings come from Judah. That's what verse uh, 10 has shown us. Priests came from Levi. Now, any attempt to switch these two offices, priest and king, was punished by God. Again, that's news to us as Gentiles if we've not been raised in the Christian faith, but Hebrew Christians would know this. Keep your place in Hebrews, drop your place in Genesis, go to 1 Samuel 13. Nimble fimble, nimble fimbles, fimbles, fingers are required. 1 Samuel 13. What we have here is disastrous. Saul is impatient. I know you've never suffered with impatience, right? But Saul was impatient. He was in a battle. He wanted victory and he knew that he needed God's blessing. And uh, God's man was slow in getting to the scene. And being impatient, he offered a sacrifice rather than wait. Look at verse 8. He waited seven days, a time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Alert, alert, alert to me. What you got to do here? You, you, you shouldn't be doing any burnt offerings. You're a king. You're not a priest. Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Yeah. As soon as he'd done it, not 20 days later, right on time, God's time. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. 
There's a biblical evidence of meet and greet right there. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? I'm not sure how he said it. He might have been slightly excited. What have you done? Might have been like that. Rather than, what have you done? He was angry. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Pharisees had mustered at Mishmash, Mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself <laughs> and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, of, uh, the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom, your kingship over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord, the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Another wow moment. King Saul offered sacrifice, which was a priestly function, and because of it, he forfeited his office as king. God stripped away his kingship because he did what only priests were to do. Again, this would not be lost on the Jewish audience. This is serious business, and all Jewish people knew the story. Saul was the first king. Of course they knew the story. This concept. You can't be both a king and a priest. Was deeply ingrained in the fabric of Hebrew thought. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. Look at verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord Jesus, our Lord, was descended from Judah, the kingly tribe, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. That's the point that's being established. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Okay. The Levitical priesthood was based on physical requirements. Firstly, they had to be a descendant of Levi. Second, they had to have a sound body, no defects. We'll not take time to read it, but we read of it in Leviticus 21. There could be no handicapped person. There can be no person with uh, anything but a sound physical body. Leviticus 21 reveals that. In contrast to that, the point being made here is the priesthood of Melchizedek was not based on physical attributes, but on the power of an indestructible life. That's why he is the type of Christ. Without birth, without death, without record of his death. That's the kind of order that Jesus functions in, the order of Melchizedek. Keep your place in Hebrews 7. Go to Psalm 10. We've been here before, but this is the point that the Hebrew writer is making. Hebrews chapter 7, stay there, but go to Psalm 110. Psalm of David, verse 1. The Lord, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now we read that, but don't fail to grasp what's being talked about here. Someone's king. Someone's sitting on a throne. Sit at my right hand, the place of authority, until I make your enemies your footstool. You're sitting on the throne. This is a kingly prophecy. Now it's interesting, Jesus quoted this in the Gospels and referred this to himself. This is massive. I'm taking a breath because I'm praying as I'm preaching that you and I will get this. See, Jesus related Psalm 110 verse 1 and said, that's about me. He applied that verse to himself. He's king, he's king on his throne and ruling. Verse 1 establishes the kingship of Jesus. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is the one on the throne? So this one is king and priest. And it's our Old Testament in a very famous psalm that portrays this. And that's where the writer of Hebrews goes. He's king and he's priest. There's no one who could be king and priest under the Levitical system. But there was one before the Levitical system, Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest. And that's the order that Jesus is in. The order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever and ever and ever. Unlike Levitical priests are here for a few years and then gone. Verse 17 of Hebrews 7. He goes there. He goes there. For it's witnessed of him. Where? Psalm 110 verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the lights start coming on for us. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one anointed. He's the king. And he's of Judah according to the flesh. And he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the argument. And this priesthood is better than anything you've ever seen in the Levitical system. There's a new priesthood, folks. It's in place. The old is defunct. It's obsolete. It's no longer in effect. Do you remember after the cross, at the time of the cross, the Bible says the veil of the temple was rent in twain, torn apart from top to bottom. It was an act of God. Scholars tell us that that curtain was between four and six inches in thickness. No man could do it. It took an act of God. God rent the, te the temple curtain asunder and said, the way is now free for all those who believe in this one to come boldly to the throne of grace. Everyone can come. What a message. What a sacrifice. What a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice. And that's what the case was not in the Old Testament. There was no perfect priest. There was no perfect sacrifice. They only brought a covering for sin. Do you know that's what the word atonement means? It means covering. Perhaps you've got a phone call and some friend of yours is on the way to your house and they say, I'll be there in five minutes. You think, I need to clean up. Uh, I'm not ready. And you don't say that, but the, the carpet, you look at the carpet, they, they can't come through the door when the carpet's like this, so what do you do? You get another carpet and put the other carpet over the carpet. It's a covering. 
That's what the old covenant system was. It didn't deal with the problem. It didn't deal with the sin, but it covered it over. And what Jesus did was take that carpet, throw it away, and absorb the sin himself. We're on holy ground here. The old is gone. You don't need to use the covering. It's interesting, if you'll trace this out, the word atonement, though the message of atonement is throughout the, the New Covenant, the word atonement isn't. There's only one mention of it in the King James Version, that's Romans chapter 5, verse 11. Other translations don't speak of atonement. The word used normally there is reconciliation. You see, Jesus did atone for sin, but he did more than atone for sin. Atonement means covering. Jesus did cover our sins, but he did more than that. He absorbed sin, and he reconciled us to God. The new priesthood is in place, folks. That's the message. The old priesthood is defunct. These people that are looking down on you because you're not coming to the synagogue, they're part of something that God has nothing to do with anymore. Nothing. It's defunct. It's obsolete. In its place is a new priesthood, a new order. There was no forever priest under the Levitical system. Now there's a forever priest fulfilled in Jesus. Go to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen. So he goes on. This forever priest is alive according to the order of Melchizedek. One man commented on these verses and said this, when John knew Jesus in his earthly ministry, he could rest with his head on his chest. But when he met the resurrected Christ in his glory, he fell at his feet as a dead man. Back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness.
Why? Why was it weak? Why was it useless? Verse 19 explains, for the law made nothing perfect. That's the point of verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthoods, no, it never did. The law made nothing perfect, verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Oh, the privilege of this. This is not just a certificate we put on the wall. That's what justification by faith alone is. The heart of the gospel. By means of the imputation of our sin to Christ, His righteousness to us, God declares us just in His sight now and forever. That's the certificate. We'll not be separated from God forever because we've been justified by the blood, the sacrifice of Christ. A lot of people have wedding certificates, but that doesn't mean they like who they're married to. Justification is the certificate, it's the legal document, but what it gives us is access to God. And that's the joy of all joys. Heaven will be heaven because God will be there, not because you get free golf. Or you see your relatives, as wonderful as that will be. It's seeing God. It's the beatific vision as theologians refer to it. Seeing God. In my flesh I shall see God, Job said. I know that my Redeemer lives. I can't work it out. I don't know the details. But Job 19 says, I know He lives. And He'll take His stand at last on the earth. And though this flesh is destroyed, yet I know I will see God. That's the hope. We'll walk with him in the garden, in the cool of the day, in the heavenly Jerusalem. Not a garden there, but a garden temple that is beautiful with a certain tree, tree of life. The law couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. All that was necessary. It was good. It was God's instruction. But it was intentionally not perfect because it was pointing to something and someone and that was the Lord Jesus who is perfect. The law couldn't do it, couldn't bring us to perfection, couldn't bring us to God. But we can now come boldly to the throne of grace. Whether you be Jew or Gentile, same message, same gospel. There's not a gospel for the Jews and a gospel for the Gentiles, nor ever were there. God never says, well, there's people that will be in heaven because they keep the law, and then there'll be people who, in the kingdom because they believe on the Lord Jesus. No. Abraham, the father of Israel, was justified because he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Whose righteousness? The righteousness of Christ. God didn't go to a tree and say, oh, there's righteousness, there's a fruit there, I'll give that to Abraham. No, when God justified Abraham, he gave him Christ. And that's the point of Romans 4. This is not a new message. Abraham got in this way, David got in this way, all of us get in this way by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone, based on the sure foundation of Scripture alone. So we can come boldly, whether we be Jew or Gentile. Believe the message. What's the message? 
in this context. A priest has come. Well, we're Americans. We don't normally see the need for priests. If you're a Hebrew Israelite, you understand there is nothing more desperate than your need for a priest. I can't just offer my own sacrifice, even if I'm king. Even if I'm king, living in the luxury of the kingly courts, I can't do it. I'm not authorized to do it. But ladies and gentlemen, we have an authorized high priest who's brought himself as the sacrifice. He brought himself, and that's the message where we're going in Hebrews. He's brought himself, and by that sacrifice has perfected for, perfected, Hebrews 10, look at it, Hebrews 10. He has perfected forever those who come to God by him. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 10, and by that will we've been sanctified, set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's the Levitical system. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made, what, what? A footstool for his feet. Psalm 110. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected. Christ has perfected a people by his cross. By his work on the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you ever wear a cross around your neck. It's kind of interesting that we would wear a mechanism of torture. Why not an electric chair when you think about it? But if you noticed, in the, if you're a Protestant, you don't have Jesus on the cross because he's not going there again. He's not there again. He's not there. He's not there. He's done it all. He went to the cross once. He's not there on the cross, offering himself again and again and again. That's what you have in the Roman Catholic Mass. It's blasphemy against the true sacrifice of Jesus that was once and for all. And so if you wear a cross, I'm not advocating you do or you don't. I'm simply saying, if you do, don't have him on the cross. He's not there. He's not there. You can go to Jerusalem and build a cross. He won't appear there. He's done it once and he's done it forever. And now he's resurrected and now he's at the place of all authority sitting in the place where God says, sit till I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. For you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Your sacrifice atoned and reconciled all it was for. The implications spelled out in verses 18 and 19 of Hebrews 7. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Have you come? Have you come to him? Christian, are you enjoying this fellowship with him? God will not count your sins against you. I'll remember your sins no more and I'll work my law in your hearts. It won't be external to you, it'll be internal. You'll love the law because I put my spirit in you. Later we'll see that the new law requires a new covenant. We spent some time dealing with the subject of covenant and it was all by intent. 
Because now the lights are going to come on as we go to the end of Hebrews 7 and into chapter 8. I pray that the lights will come on for you. And I'm praying they'll come on for you today to realize what this Jesus has done. Get a little Jewish in your thinking. And all of your Bible will start coming alive. Oh, so, so Genesis is not just to Jews, it's for everybody. Yes, that's the point. Exodus, not just for Jews and their deliverance and redemption from Egypt, is for us. He's brought us out of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. He's given us all the inheritance of everyone who ever lived in the Israeli community. In Christ, you're in the Messiah. You have his relationship with the Father. You're kidding. The Father loves the Son, and He loves you the same way. You're kidding. No, if it wasn't in our Bibles, you read John 17, that's what's there. You're an heir of God. Joint heir with Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And you stand in the finished work of the perfect Savior. How the enemy has obscured this from our sight. So many pastors, they say they're going to preach through a book of the Bible and they're intimidated by Hebrews. I have to say I have been. I thought Hebrews 7 is coming. But if we can grasp it. We've been given so much. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the finished work of the perfect Savior. We stand in him, the one who has reconciled us, as well as atoned. He lifted the carpet. He absorbed all the sin of all God's people through the ages. For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We stand in perfect righteousness None of it ours. Christ himself is our righteousness. And this day, today, right now, he ever lives as our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. He ever lives to make intercession for us. The devil says, but they did this, he did that, she did this. And the son says, but I did that. I did that. I did that. And it is finished. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.